All right, welcome to the podcast. Today we will be discussing mood disorders, specifically depression and anxiety. So since this is the first episode, I wanted to go over some of the resources that I will be uh, using a lot and referencing uh, throughout the podcast. The first that I really love uh, is a book. It's called First Aid for the Psychiatry Clerkship. Uh, It's currently in the fifth edition, uh, but it's a fantastic book uh, that will teach you really all you need to know about uh, psychiatry for the shelf exam as well as for uh, when you're on the clerkship itself. I think it's a great resource. Uh, Fairly short read, uh, but very, very good about covering the key points in psychiatry. I also recommend going through a QBank question bank uh, such as UWorld uh, or I know there are a few others, but uh, UWorld is one that I really used on my psychiatry clerkship uh, and it worked fantastic. So uh, those are the two big ones I'll be referencing um, going forward. And uh, if you want to follow along, feel free in the book. Uh, I'll be kind of jumping around at, at not following exactly their order, but uh, feel free to follow along if you'd like. Uh, the first thing that we're going to discuss uh, for mood disorders, it's important to know the difference between mood episodes and mood disorders. Uh, a mood episode uh, is a period of time in which you have an abnormal mood. Uh, it's, it's more of a time than a distinct disorder. Uh, a mood disorder is defined by uh, patterns of mood episodes. Um, so basically, you have a lot of different uh, disorders that have specific criteria that you need to meet in order to be diagnosed with that disorder. And during that, you know, the course of that disorder, you will have different mood episodes. So, for example, you know, major depressive disorder, you're going to have mood episodes uh, of depression. You won't always be depressed, uh, but you will have these episodes of depression. Uh, in other disorders like bipolar one disorder, you'll have uh, mood episodes of, of mania followed by episodes of depression. Uh, so important distinction to make, you'll be asked about episodes and disorders while you're on your rotation, uh, and you want to know the difference between the two. Now, the first disorder that we're going to talk about is uh, major depressive disorder. Now, with any of these disorders, it's very important that you first rule out any medical disorders that could be contributing to the mood disorder uh, or a substance-induced mood disorder. So they're having these uh, symptoms of depression or anxiety due to some substance they that they induced or to due to a medical uh, disorder. Uh, You're going to want to rule out those first. before you move on and diagnose them with a mood disorder. Now, to start off with with major depressive disorder, uh, let's go over the uh, DSM-5 criteria. So you want to at least have five of these following symptoms for at least a two-week period to diagnose depression or major depressive disorder. The, uh, The first one is depressed mood most of the time. The second one is anhedonia, uh, which is a loss of interest in pleasurable activities. Now, you're going to have to have at least one of these two uh, in in order to diagnose major depressive disorder. The other symptoms include uh, change in appetite or weight, up or down, 
uh, feelings of worthlessness or excessive guilt, insomnia or hypersomnia, diminished concentration, psychomotor agitation or retardation, fatigue or loss of energy, recurrent thoughts of death or suicide. Now, those are the nine criteria uh, that uh, the DSM-5 lays out. And these symptoms, you can't be able to attribute them to the effects of a substance like a drug or a medication that they're taking or another medical condition, and they have to cause clinically significant distress. Now, it's super difficult to remember all of those, and I wouldn't suggest remembering it that way. Uh, the most easy way to uh, to remember all these is the mnemonic SIGI caps. I'm sure you've all uh, heard of it before, uh, but we'll go over it. So the, uh, the uh, components of SIGI caps include sleep, interest, guilt, energy, concentration, appetite, psychomotor activity, like retardation, uh, or suicidal ideation. Now you'll notice in the uh, mnemonic SIGI caps, it doesn't include depression uh, or anhedonia. That's something you have to remember on top of these. But uh, if you remember depression, anhedonia, and then uh, SIGI caps, and you have to have at least five of those, including uh, one of either depression or anhedonia, that meets the criteria uh, for major depressive disorder. And the last criteria for major depressive disorder from the DSM-5 is that you cannot have a history of a manic or hypomanic episode. Uh, If you do, it's considered a different disorder that we'll talk about uh, later. Epidemiology is something that uh, the shelf exams like to get get into at times. Uh, I wouldn't remember specific numbers, uh, but make sure you know that the lifetime prevalence of major depressive disorder is pretty high. It's a very common disorder. Uh, it's, you can get it at any age, but, uh, the peak onset is typically in the twenties. Uh, it's much more common in women than men, uh, you know, one to 1.5 to two times more common, uh, during their reproductive years. It's also very common in the elderly and kind of along that note, uh, Something that they love to test on is that depression can increase mortality for patients with other uh, comorbidities like diabetes, stroke, cardiovascular disease, uh, things like that. So that's one thing very important to remember that uh, it does increase mortality uh, for patients with other health problems. Some of the sleep problems associated with a major depressive disorder include multiple awakenings. Uh, You also have uh, initial and terminal insomnia, so it's hard to fall asleep, and uh, you wake up very early in the morning. Uh, you have uh, some people have hypersomnia; it is uh, less common uh, than insomnia. And then uh, it's important to note: this is something they love to test on that uh, REM sleep is shifted earlier in the night uh, for a greater duration. So you will end up having a decreased REM latency and an increased REM duration which is something they like to test on. The exact etiology of major depressive disorder and depression in general is unknown, uh, but it's thought to be multifactorial. There are many factors contributing to depression, including uh, biological, genetic, environmental, and psychosocial factors. MDD is thought to be caused by neurotransmitter abnormalities in the brain, uh, and there has been some studies they have shown a decreased uh, CSF level of 5-HIAA, which is a metabolite of serotonin. 
And this has led some people to postulate that because you have a decreased level of this 5-HIAA, uh, you have a decreased level of serotonin overall, uh, and this is uh, one of the causes of depression. And that makes sense when you think about it. You know, uh, major depressive disorder is often treated with SSRIs to increase your body's uh, serotonin level. Some other studies have shown that major depressive disorder is uh, correlated with high cortisol in the body and abnormal thyroid access uh, and a few other things. But the main thing to remember is the uh, decreased uh, 5-HIAA metabolite of serotonin in the CSF. Another important note for the etiology of major depressive disorder is that multiple adverse childhood experiences are a risk factor for later developing MDD. Another thing that they love to test are the uh, genetics of MDD. You'll want to remember that there is an increased risk for developing major depressive disorder if you have major depressive disorder in your family. Uh, the concordance uh, risk for monozygotic twins is uh, less than 40%. Uh, but uh, 10 to 20% for dizygotic twins. So uh, you'll see that there is an increased risk for major depressive disorder in those monozygotic twins, which suggests that there is uh, some sort of family uh, genetic component. As for the course of major depressive disorder, uh, these depressive episodes are typically self-limiting, last anywhere from about six months to a year, uh, and uh, they often reoccur. But the combination of psychotherapy, uh, particularly CBT, and pharmacotherapy have shown uh, great results for patients who suffer from MDD. For treatment, one of the important things to know is if the patient is at risk for suicide or harming themselves or homicide, harming other people, uh, or they're just unable to care for themselves, you'll need to hospitalize them. And if they're in the emergency department, sometimes that means that you need to fill out a form stating that they cannot leave and that they need to be admitted for inpatient psychiatric treatment. Pharmacotherapy for major depressive disorder uh, includes SSRIs, which are the first-line treatment. These include medications such as fluoxetine, escitalopram, sertraline, or their brand names Prozac, Lexapro, Zoloft. Some of the main side effects from SSRI use include uh, headache, GI disturbance, and sexual dysfunction, and uh, sometimes rebound anxiety. I would say they most commonly ask about sexual dysfunction and rebound anxiety when talking about uh, the uh, side effects for SSRIs. Another important note about uh, SSRIs is that if you abruptly cease taking SSRIs, you can have something called SSRI discontinuation syndrome. This happens when someone abruptly uh, stops taking their SSRIs and uh, typically leads to flu-like illnesses with sometimes a mild fever and GI upset. And the way to avoid that is obviously tapering the medication when you decide to discontinue it. You'll also see SNRIs used uh, for treatment of major depressive disorder, serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. These include medications such as venlafaxine and duloxetine or Effexor or Cymbalta. These are great medications for patients who have superimposed fibromyalgia or neuropathic pain. Some of your atypical antidepressants uh, include mirtazapine or remeron. 
which is an alpha-2 adrenergic receptor antagonist. You'll also see patients on Welbutrin, which is a dopamine norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. An important side effect for mirtazapine includes orthostatic hypotension, and they seem to love to ask about the contraindications to Welbutrin, and that includes anyone who has a history of an eating disorder, as well as anyone who has a history of a seizure disorder, as Welbutrin can lower the seizure threshold. These next two medications you're not going to see in the hospital used a lot. You probably won't see them on outpatient either very much. Uh, They include TCAs and monoamine oxidase inhibitors. They were used more historically uh, for uh, atypical depression or treatment-resistant depression, uh, but they are not very commonly used anymore just due to their side effect profiles. And I'm going to have a totally separate podcast that talks about some of the more common pharmacology questions on uh, psychiatric medications. So I encourage you guys to check that one out. Uh, But some of the things you need to remember for uh, these two drugs, uh, for TCAs, they will cause a variety of side effects. Uh, Some of the more lethal ones include uh, cardiac arrhythmias. And those include a prolonged QT as well as a widened QRS. And if you see any of these symptoms or problems with TCA, you want to think about TCA overdose, uh, and you want to treat it with sodium bicarb. And the sodium bicarb is not to alkalinize the urine or alkalinize the serum. It's actually the sodium that's doing the bulk of the work, which are blocking cardiac sodium channels. Uh, Some of the other well-known side effects for TCAs include uh, sedation, weight gain, uh, anticholinergic effects, and this is one of those drugs that uh, is on the Beers criteria list of medications to avoid in the elderly, uh, so that's something you want to keep in mind with TCAs. The classic side effect for monoamine oxidase inhibitors is a hypertensive crisis, and that's precipitated by uh, taking monoamine oxidase inhibitors uh, on top of uh, tyramine-rich foods. That's kind of your buzzword is the tyramine-rich foods. Uh, And those foods include wine, beer, aged cheeses, liver, uh, smoked meat, things like that. Uh, And you can also see orthostatic hypotension with monoamine oxidase inhibitors. If you combined uh, these medications or you start uh, one too soon after discontinuing another, you can have something called serotonin syndrome. It's very common, and I'm sure you saw it on step one, but it is characterized by uh, myoclonus, hyperreflexia, diaphoresis, and can be life-threatening. So it's important to, uh, to look out for it. And uh, one question that they love to ask is, how soon after uh, discontinuing a serotonergic agent like an SSRI can you start another? Uh, so say a patient you know, was having side effects to their SSRI, they wanted to discontinue uh, and start a TCA. How quickly can you start that TCA without precipitating uh, serotonin syndrome? And typically it's about four to six weeks. Uh, An important thing to know about any of these uh, antidepressant medications is that they're all pretty equally effective in treating the depressive symptoms, uh, but they differ in side effect profile that we talked about. And these medications can take up to four to six weeks to fully work. So sometimes you get a question about a patient who has been taking SSRI, you know, only for 
two weeks or three weeks and uh, they want to know what to do, uh, typically the answer is to continue uh, for the four to six weeks and to see if there is any change uh, before starting a new uh, medication. Uh, like I talked about earlier, the best way to treat major depressive disorder is a combination of psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy. And the uh, uh, most common psychotherapy that you're going to see on the shelf exam is CBT. And whenever you see CBT, it's almost certainly the right answer uh, with a couple uh, important exceptions that we'll talk about. And uh, of course, CBT stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. For uh, someone who is really sick, has really bad MDD, uh, who's unresponsive to pharmacotherapy or cannot tolerate their, their medications, um, something that you can consider is uh, ECT or electroconvulsive therapy. Typically, it's reserved for patients who um, have an immediate risk or high risk of suicide uh, and who have a refusal to eat or drink. Those are the two common ones that you'll see on the exam. Uh, also, catatonia is uh, another indication for ECT. Uh, ECT is actually a, a very interesting treatment. Uh, it's typically performed under general anesthesia uh, after giving uh, muscle re relaxant to the patient. And then you uh, pass a current of electricity across the brain, uh, inducing a seizure, and uh, do this multiple times, uh, si typically 6 to 12 uh, treatments uh, over a period of a few weeks. And uh, it sounds pretty barbaric, but uh, it actually re works really well. Um, you can see really significant improvements uh, even after just the first couple of treatments. And the, uh, the big common question they always ask about on shelf exams are the, uh, the side effects of ECT. Uh, and the most common side effect of ECT is retrograde and anterograde amnesia. Uh, these, this amnesia will typically resolve, self-resolve within probably about six months, uh, sometimes uh, more, sometimes less. And sometimes it does persist for the rest of the patient's life, but typically it will go away. Uh, sometimes when you're on rotation or uh, on an exam or a UWorld or other QBank question, it'll ask about uh, atypical features of depression. There are a few atypical features that you should know about. Uh, the first is hypersomnia. Like we talked about, typically uh, with major depressive disorder, you see insomnia, but you can see hypersomnia, so they sleep more. Uh, hyperphagia is also a, an atypical feature of major depressive disorder. Reactive mood, uh, meaning that they get happy when there's a happy event in their life. They're not uh, continually depressed through it. Uh, so their mood is reactive to whatever's going on around them, but on a baseline level, they're depressed. Latent paralysis uh, is another atypical feature. And then hypersensitivity to uh, rejection, interpersonal rejection specifically. All right, that's pretty much it on major depressive disorder. Uh, next, we're going to move into bereavement. Uh, bereavement is also known as just grief. Uh, it's a reaction to a major loss, you know, usually the loss of a loved one or loved thing, like a pet, uh, but it's not considered a mental illness. These symptoms should be self-limiting. Uh, they typically only last for a few months to six months, uh, sometimes a little bit longer, but they are self-limiting. 
And it's important to note that uh, to in order to qualify for bereavement, you cannot meet the criteria to be diagnosed with major depressive disorder. If you do meet the criteria for MDD, then you're diagnosed with MDD and not bereavement. And uh, one other note on bereavement, it should not be uh, associated with active suicidality. If there is active suicidality, then it's most likely major depressive disorder. Next, we'll talk about dysthymia or persistent depressive disorder. Patients with persistent depressive disorder or dysthymia have chronic depression most of the time, uh, and during that time, they may uh, have discrete episodes, like we talked about, of major depression, but overall, they're chronically depressed. And the DSM-5 criteria for dysthymia is a depressed mood for the majority of the time, most days, for at least two years. And they will have some, typically some other symptoms of depression that we talked about earlier, such as poor concentration, poor appetite, insomnia, fatigue, low self-esteem. And they may have episodes of uh, major depression. But the key thing for uh, persistent depressive disorder is timing. As we talked about uh, to meet the DSM-5 criteria, you need to have depressed mood for the majority of the time, most days for at least two years, and the patient uh, can't be without depression and some of the other symptoms that we talked about uh, for at least two months at a time during those two years. So just to recap, uh, dysthymia is having at least two years of depression without having a lapse in that depression for more than two months at a time. As far as the prognosis uh, for dysthymia, these depressive symptoms that the patient has uh, are less likely to resolve uh, than in major depressive disorder, but they are treated very similar with a combination treatment of psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy. The pharmacotherapy that you typically use is the same with uh, major depressive disorder, SSRIs, SNRIs, and then your uh, atypical antidepressants, Welbutrin and Mirtazapine. All right, so the next thing we're going to talk about are the anxiety disorders. Uh, with any of these anxiety disorders, it's very important uh, that you first rule out the anxiety being due to uh, physiological effects of a substance, a medication that they're taking, or another medical condition. Very commonly, you'll be asked to you know, rule out whether this is really anxiety or could it be like a pheochromocytoma or is this anxiety or are they withdrawing? So it's really important to get a good uh, history, uh, physical, and then look at the labs that they give you as well. All right, so first we're going to talk about generalized anxiety disorder. The DSM-5 criteria for diagnosis includes excessive anxiety or worry about various daily events or activities for greater than six months, important, again, with timing, difficulty controlling the worry, and you also have to have uh, three or more of these associated symptoms, and those include restlessness, fatigue, impaired concentration, irritability, muscle tension, and insomnia. And the mnemonic to remember those associated symptoms is worry warts. That's wound up, worn out for the W, absent-minded, restless, tense, sleepless. So they're worried, and then they have the warts, uh, three of the warts as well. Generalized anxiety disorder is extremely common. Uh, the rates are higher in women compared to men, about a 2 to 1 ratio. 
and there is a genetic component to generalized anxiety disorder. Symptoms typically begin in childhood, but the median age of onset of generalized anxiety disorder is about 30 years old. The course is chronic. Uh, It's waxing and waning, though, and the rates of full remission are low. Treatment for generalized anxiety disorder include, again, a combination of psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy. Psychotherapy uh, includes CBT, and pharmacotherapy includes SSRIs or SNRIs, and you can also consider a short-term course of benzodiazepines. Moving on from generalized anxiety disorder, let's talk about panic disorder. Panic disorder is characterized by spontaneous, out-of-the-blue panic attacks. And these panic attacks can happen multiple times a month, multiple times a day, or even just multiple times a year. But the important thing to note is that these uh, panic attacks are debilitating. Uh, They often have fear about having future panic attacks, um, and that affects their everyday life. So the DSM-5 criteria for panic disorder include uh, recurrent unexpected panic attacks without an identifiable trigger, One or more of these panic attacks followed by more than one month uh, of continuous worry about experiencing subsequent attacks or their consequences, or maladaptive change in behavior like avoiding uh, possible triggers. And obviously these panic attacks cannot be caused as a direct effect of a substance, uh, another medical disorder, mental disorder. And uh, as far as panic attacks go, this is one, especially on the shelf exam, that you really want to rule out another medical condition, uh, such as thyrotoxicosis, you know, a heart attack, thromboembolism, um, uh, pheochromocytoma, things like that that can mimic anxiety but are actually the result of a medical condition that needs to be uh, dealt with. Treatment of panic disorder, again, combination of of CBT and pharmacotherapy is the most effective. First line are SSRIs or SNRIs, and sometimes you'll see patients with a scheduled or PRN benzodiazepine uh, for abortive therapy when they're having a panic attack. Agoraphobia is often associated with panic attacks or panic disorder. The DSM-5 criteria of agoraphobia is intense fear or anxiety about uh, more than two situations uh, due to concerns of difficulty escaping or obtaining help in case of a panic or other humiliating symptoms. And this includes fear of things like going outside of the home alone, being in open spaces, uh, enclosed places, uh, like in big crowds, uh, public transportation, like in trains, uh, or crowds or lines. And these things all cause significant social or occupational dysfunction and last for six or more months. And again, this is highly associated with panic attacks and panic disorder, uh, and treatment is similar uh, to panic disorders with CBT and SSRIs. Uh, Specific phobia is a fear of, or irrational fear of of a certain object or situation. You really aren't going to be asked about this on any of the exams or on the wards, like knowing what a specific phobia is called or anything like that. You'll want to know the treatment for specific phobias. Uh, The treatment of choice is just CBT, and that should be good enough for specific phobias. 
The last thing I want to touch on is social anxiety disorder or social phobia. Uh, it's a fear of scrutiny by others or fear of acting in a humiliating or embarrassing way when you're around a group of people. This can be when you're doing things like public speaking, performing, or talking to a large crowd. Uh, people with social anxiety disorder will avoid those situations out of fear of embarrassing themselves. The treatment of choice for social anxiety disorder is CBT, and then uh, the first-line medications, if you need them, uh, are SSRIs or SNRIs. Uh, you can also give a benzodiazepine, uh, can be scheduled, or PRN for when they're in this uh, type of situation where they need to perform, uh, and then beta blockers as well for performance anxiety and, or public speaking. And the most common beta blocker you'll see is propranolol for this. All right, guys. Well, this completes the podcast for the mood disorders. I uh, hope you all enjoyed it. And uh, please, again, let me know if there's anything that I didn't cover that you'd like me to go into more detail. Uh, but I think we covered the main points for depression and anxiety that you'll need to know for your shelf exam as well as for the wards. Uh, at the end of each episode, I'm going to try and do a quick rapid fire to hit kind of the main points of what we talked about today. A key concept that we talked about today is the importance of ruling out uh, medical disorders or substance-induced mood disorders whenever you're uh, considering a mood disorder or really any psychiatric uh, disorder. First, you want to rule out any medical disorders or substance abuse that can explain the symptoms. For major depressive disorder, things you want to remember, the definition, uh, you're going to want to remember that they need to have uh, depression or anhedonia uh, for at least two weeks, as well as uh, four of the SIGI CAPS uh, symptoms. They're going to try and trick you on the exam and only give you, you know, three of the symptoms or four uh, and not quite meet the criteria, so be sure to look out for that. They need to have uh, the five symptoms in order to meet the DSM-5 criteria for major depressive disorder. And then the treatment for MDD is CBT uh, and pharmacotherapy, including SSRIs or SNRIs or first line. Dysthymic disorder means that you've been uh, depressed for two years at least uh, without a gap of more than two months at a time. And it's treated the same way as major depressive disorder. For anxiety, again, rule out any medical problems, rule out any substance abuse that can account for the symptoms, and then know the treatment, which is a combination of CBT and first-line therapy, uh, SSRIs or SNRIs. Know that panic disorder is treated with a combination of CBT and pharmacotherapy, uh, first-line SSRIs or SNRIs, uh, and then you can also use benzodiazepines as scheduled or PRN. Know that panic disorder is often associated with agoraphobia, which is fear of being in a place where escape or obtaining help might be difficult. And finally, uh, knowing that social anxiety disorder is the fear of acting in a humiliating or embarrassing way when you're uh, public speaking or performing, and that the treatment of choice is a combination of uh, psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy, CBT being the psychotherapy of choice, and uh, SSRIs and SNRIs being the pharmacotherapy, uh, as well as benzodiazepines, uh, PRN or scheduled, and beta blockers such as propranolol. All right, guys, congratulations, you made it through. 
thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you next time. Oh, 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 oh,